passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's the nose. Hey, hey. No, 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 yes. no, 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 well, this is something that people are going to be talking about next week one way or the other. Perhaps Raquel Pennington's nose is broken. She told her corner she was done. Yeah, I want to be done. Those were her exact words. I'm done. Perhaps trying to live to fight another day, so to speak, or prevent further damage. But her corner evidently wanted her to continue. And here's round five. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our UFC 224 Post Show. I'm John Pollock here with you at postwrestling.com, going through all of the action that went down on Saturday night. We're going to run through the card from Brazil. We'll also go through the results from Bellator 199, which was happening head-to-head on Saturday from San Jose. And then we're going to dedicate the last portion of this show uh, to your feedback and questions that we put up uh, a thread for up at the post wrestling forum. So, uh, lots to discuss on this particular show. Uh, not the least of which is the main event that went down between Amanda Nunez and Raquel Pennington. And that is going to be the fight that, while it was hardly, uh, the best fight on the show, it's probably going to be the most discussed. In particular, the actions of Raquel Pennington's corner in between rounds four and five. And we might as well start there because Uh, That is going to be the most controversial part of this card was Raquel Pennington, who was significantly down on the scorecards by the end of the fourth round. She had been outstruck. She had been taken down throughout the fight. This was Amanda Nunez, who was clearly up. I had her up four rounds to none going into the fifth. And her nose, Raquel Pennington's nose, was significantly damaged by the end of the fourth round. So she goes to the corner and instructs her corner, she's done. She wants out. And she gets up, turns around to her corner, who who are behind her, and she is talked out of relinquishing the fight and is told to change her mindset, to continue this fight, and worry about it later. We can recover later. Give it everything you have. And Raquel Pennington went into the fifth round And she was decimated in the fifth. Amanda Nunez cracked her in her already injured nose. And as Jimmy Smith described it on the broadcast, her nose exploded. And that wasn't far from the description because you just saw as though a water bottle of blood had just fallen down onto the canvas. There was just blood pouring out of her nose. 
Amanda Nunez took her back and was striking and thankfully got the stoppage. It was an unnecessary extra portion of the fight that we did not need to see. And yes, looking at the result, her corner is going to, and rightfully so, get a lot of criticism. Now, I'm going to also couch it this way, that the relationship between a fighter and their corner is an incredibly significant one, a very sacred relationship where there is a trust level, where there is a connection between those sides that uh, you and I really can't uh, break down and truly understand because we're not in the shoes there. If Raquel Pennington comes out in the fifth and gets a a Hail Mary shot that lands, their corner is looking like that they extended this fight and gave their fighter that last grasp and it turned out perfectly. Now, was that going to happen? The odds of that were minuscule if you had been watching this fight. I feel that as much as there's going to be so much outrage over this decision by her corner to talk their fighter into continuing, while it's one I disagree with, I think it's ultimately Raquel Pennington who will wake up on Sunday and she will feel one of two ways. She will feel that as she goes back and inevitably watches this fight, that her corner took picked her up as she was doubting herself and they they gave her the faith to continue in this fight and she will thank them. Or she will have the realization that she had nothing left and the hardest thing for her as a fighter challenging for a championship was to know that you had no chance left and you had to relinquish this fight and her corner didn't allow her a way out of this fight, which is to me, the corner needs to always have the concern, the safety of their fighter at the top. And in mixed martial arts, we don't typically see corners that save their own fighters. It's always pushing them for that one more round, regardless of how one-sided a fight has turned out. Or in this case for Raquel Pennington, not believing that, that she can continue this fight and not having her corner back her. So that's going to come down to Raquel Pennington. And she will be the one to render a verdict on the decision by her corner. She very well could have woken up on Sunday and figured, why, why was I even thinking of stopping a championship fight? A championship I may never get a shot at again. Thank God my corner pushed me to, in there. Now, that's, I think, giving a lot of, uh, assuming a lot and and uh, quite the benefit of the doubt. Um, I watched it. I just thought it was an unnecessary fifth round, and it turned out awful. Uh, with If you saw the amount of blood she lost and how badly her nose is damaged, we don't know. It was unnecessary. Um it's not the kind of an injury that is going to end her career, but it was, to me, when a fighter is telling their corner, I cannot continue, I think you owe it to your fighter to listen to them. Uh, so that was the main event. Amanda Nunez looked tremendous in this fight. You know, there was a time when Amanda Nunez had the knock on her that she was a great first-round fighter. And once you got her out of the first round, that was when she tired. And we saw against Valentina Shevchenko, and we saw here a fighter in Nunez who can go five hard rounds and keep up that pace. Uh, she, 
to me, there was one round that was competitive, and that was the second round when Raquel Pennington got uh, a takedown in the round and also landed some uppercuts in the clinch. But even in that round, it was Nunez outstriking her, landing knees to the face, and she came out with a very good game plan, and that was attacking the leg of Pennington early and often and damaged Pennington's leg significantly uh, in the opening minutes of the fight and they would trade in the pocket, uh, but it was Nunez who was controlling the striking, putting Pennington's back up against the fence, boxing her, uh, limiting her angles, and it was very effective for Nunez. Um, after that second round where Pennington, uh, some people even gave Pennington the second. I did not. Uh, I thought Nunez won every round here. In the third, um, Nunez really had her uh, she was flowing very, very seamlessly uh, from leg kicks to her right-left combinations. Uh, the takedowns were there when she needed them. Uh, Pennington was uh, unsuccessful when she was attempting her own single leg takedown in the third. And it was a counter right that Nunez stunned Pennington with um, that kind of punctuated that third round. And in the fourth, it was another dominant round from Nunez. This was the round that I think broke Raquel Pennington. She was just getting piled on in this round with, with the strikes adding up, a trip takedown, and then the knees that Amanda incorporated late into this fourth round. She was delivering knees to the body, knees to the face from the clinch, um, just very effective with all points of contact. And by the end of this fourth round, this this fight did feel like it was over. And through Raquel Peng- Pennington, it was over, probably should have been over. Uh, but we did get the additional two minutes and 36 seconds, which is how long it took for Amanda Nunez to stop Pennington in the fifth. So she retains her title. It was a very dominant performance from Amanda Nunez. And when you look at that bantamweight division, um, like there's a reason Raquel Pennington got this fight, and that is there's not a whole lot of options at 135 pounds for Amanda Nunez, nor is it the division that is going to be generating a lot of business on pay-per-view. And Amanda Nunez fighting on pay-per-view, um, it is a tough sell, despite the win over Ronda Rousey, despite the win over Misha Tate, and holding this title coming up on two years in July. Um Amanda Nunez has not clicked at that top level, and it's uh, it's not really one element that you can really uh, point out with Amanda Nunez other than she has not been able to click at that same level that Ronda Rousey did, that Holly Holm did, to, I would say, for quite the time, and and still uh, a much bigger star than Amanda Nunez, and that Misha Tate did as well. You look at the the division as it stands now, uh, you have uh, Ketlin Vieta, who is up there, but that's not a super appealing fight. Like, this is a division that, realistically, there there is not a whole lot um, of options out there for Amanda Nunez and a future title fight. Raquel Pennington, I mean, she had quite the road to this title fight, for those unaware. She had not fought since... November of 2016, when she defeated Misha Tate at UFC 205. And since that time, uh, she had uh, a number of surgeries. She had a shoulder surgery. Uh, she had she had multiple surgeries in this time, the worst of which happened last October when she was involved in this ATV accident and ended up rolling the ATV and 
could have lost her lower part of her leg. Um, it was, thankfully, she was wearing these large hunting boots that uh, preserved her leg, but it was a significant injury that uh, threw this fight off. They were supposed to fight uh, many, many months ago, and they delayed this. And there was realistically no other contenders uh, waiting in the wings for Amanda Nunez. And they kind of go back to that now where this division has to sort itself out at the moment and build up some contenders because they're not there at the moment. So let's go back to the uh, start of the card. Um, we'll, uh, we'll work our way up there after uh, going over the main event there. This was, in terms of an action card, one of the best of the year, maybe the best action card of the year. Super entertaining undercard. Lots of finishes. Uh, we had a grand total of two decisions on this uh, 13 fight card. Uh, so we started all the way back on Fight Pass with Marcus Perez taking on James uh, Boknovic at 205 pounds. And Boknovic came out and landed on Perez early, who just defended and took him down. And Perez just took this fight over in the grappling department. He had the slam takedown after they briefly got up, moved to half guard, and he was just going from one submission to the next, tried for a darce, then went for the rear naked choke. And Perez finally got his forearm under the chin and Boknovic tapped out at four minutes, 28 seconds of the first round. And that was kind of a sign of uh, things to come, uh, though not in the next fight. Uh, we had Ramazan Ahmed taking on uh, Alberto Mina. And Mina is 13-0 and coming into this fight. However, uh, he's been very inactive. His last fight was all the way back in July of 2016. Uh, so Ameev, however... Uh, 16 and three fighter coming into this fight, and he had debuted in the UFC last October, uh, defeating Sam Elvey, had fought in the uh, M1 Challenge organization prior to that. Uh, so early on, and this, uh, you know, not a very exciting fight, one of the few non exciting fights on this show. Uh, Amiv was uh, taking him down tagged him with a left hand as they got up, and then Mina was trying for a leg lock uh, towards the end of the round. Amiv in the second round took him back down again, was able to get his back while they were standing, and then ducked this uh, spinning back elbow, uh, dumped him down uh, with a waist lock takedown. Uh, he was you know, efficient with his takedowns, landing about three of them at this point. And then in the third round, uh, Mina was able to kind of get things going in this final round, and Amiv just through a series of strikes. Uh, Mina did land in this particular round, but uh, I had uh, Ramazan Amiv winning all three rounds, as did all three of the judges. Uh, then we got into uh, our first uh, gutsy performance of the night, and that was Jack Hermanson, who came and was able to pull a victory out of the jaws of defeat uh, from Tallis Leites in middleweight action. Uh, this was Leites' 20th UFC fight, and in the early portion uh, of this fight, Hermanson won the first round, uh, very close first round. Uh, but then in the second, uh, Leites took this fight over. He got the takedown and Hermanson was screaming in pain from this takedown. He got mounted, but he was, as he's wincing in pain, he's still able to survive. And when Talis Leites is mounting you, you could be at a hundred percent health and still get submitted. And this guy uh, is obviously 
has injured himself in some form or fashion. Uh, the replay showed him being taken down and his knee kind of bending. Uh, so everyone was assuming it was the knee. Um, in the third round, he kind of was able to recover here. And he comes out of the gate in the third round with this flying knee attempt, goes for the guillotine, and Leites is out, goes for his own choke, and uh, tries for a guillotine, which Hermanson pops out of, and then he's able to mount Leites. And Hermanson starts dropping all these shots from the back position, and he gets the stoppage, this total come-from-behind victory at 210 of the third round, and then afterwards, he can barely stand, and he's explaining that he broke his rib, he felt, when he was taken down, and he might have also injured the knee, but all he brought up was the rib injury, uh, which is uh, a devastating injury having to happen in the middle of a fight. Um, But here you go. I mean, we're talking about Raquel Pennington earlier, and here we have on the undercard a guy who may have had a broken rib uh, that comes back and probably had no business doing so after that second round, and he comes back and he wins the fight. Um, so, you know, if you're a corner and your fighter has made their way to a championship fight and you see something like this on the undercard with Jack Hermanson breaking a rib and being able to stop Tallis Leites, a, a high-level fighter, um, you know, that's... That's the kind of high wire act you play as a corner. And tonight, Raquel Pennington's corner, um, they they obviously felt that they had to send their fighter back out. The difference between the two is Jack Hermanson was on board to continue. He was not the one protesting that, hey, guys, I'm done. He wanted to continue this fight. And that's, that, that's going to be the disagreement that you're going to have between these two examples uh, that I bring up. Warley Alves took on Sultan Aliyev in welterweight action. And John Anik noted that Warley Alves vomited right before he came out for this fight. So uh, getting himself uh, psyched up for this bout with uh, Sultan Aliyev. And early on, uh, Alves was landing with a right hand, followed with a a body kick and uh, blasted him with this looping right hand, clear first round uh, for Alves. And then continued in the second where Aliyev... He had started to swell under his right eye, and it just progressively got worse to the point that the side of his face was all bruised, like his cheek was all bruised. It looked horrendous, and Alvis wins the second round, and then the fight is stopped uh, after the second round because they go up on a leave for a close-up, and he has got this gigantic swelling under his eye, like this giant hematoma. Um, They're speculating that he could have an orbital break. That would not surprise me. This looked so graphic, and thankfully, they stopped the fight, and we did not get a third round. So Warley Alves got the uh, TKO via doctor's stoppage um, at the end of the second round, and he improves now to 12-2 and uh, in the UFC welterweight division. Elishu Zaleski Dos Santos took on Sean Strickland. Uh, This was another bout at welterweight. And Zaleski stuns him with a right hand, and Strickland blocked a takedown. And then Zaleski hits this beautiful spinning wheel kick that just rocks Strickland, and he swarms him with strikes, finishes him with hammer fists at 3 minutes, 12 seconds of the first round. One of the more spectacular finishes of the year uh, from Ilishu Zaleski Dos Santos here. Uh, 3-12 of the first round. It just looked... uh, 
phenomenal. I mean, this was uh, th- this was really approaching Edson Barbosa, Terry Edom level of spinning wheel kick, or even uh, just just a couple of weeks ago with Edson Barbosa and Kevin Lee. Uh, this was a tremendous finish by Dos Santos. Davi Ramos uh, took on Nick Hine next. Uh, Nick Hine, who's a, a veteran here of the UFC, uh, Ramos or Hamos. One of the things that uh, I'm, I'm just going to uh, rant on a little here is that I think everybody looks at John Anik for the pronunciations of some of these names and goes by them. And I think it's imperative that Bruce Buffer echo whatever pronunciations John Anik is going to present on the broadcast. Because in this one where you have uh, Davi Hamos, as it's pronounced by the broadcasters, and then you have Bruce Buffer uh, pronouncing the R as Ramos, it just, to me, it comes across as like you guys are all part of the same broadcast and you don't communicate with one another. It just seems so strange to have two separate pronunciations. And this is not an isolated incident either. So Hamos uh, landed a high kick and was able to trick Hine, getting the takedown into half guard and then just transitioned from a Kimura attempt to take the back of Hine. This was a wonderful transition here as he set up the Kimura and then ended up taking Hine's, Hine's back and... Once Hamos got to his back, uh, Hine could not shake him off, and he just tightened up this crank. Uh wasn't even a choke, really. It was just like a crank on the neck. And Hamos got the rear naked choke victory. Four minutes, 15 seconds of the first round. Improves to eight and two. He's definitely a prospect at lightweight that people are going to be taking notice of after this particular fight. Nick Hine is no pushover in the UFC lightweight division, like a gatekeeper role, uh, but one that uh, almost passed with flying colors here, his second win in the UFC uh, after debuting last December. Uh, so Hamos is certainly somebody to watch. Uh, next up, we had Alexei Olinik taking on Junior Albini, who was not wearing a diaper this time around in his heavyweight bout. Olenek gets cut under the right eye early, and it doesn't matter because this guy just keeps running forward. You could throw an axe at this man, and he would keep coming forward to you, knowing that he just needs to get his arms around your neck for an Ezekiel choke. And what happens? Albini gets a takedown with Olenek on bottom, securing an Ezekiel choke, and Albini on top taps out again an Ezekiel choke victory by Alexei Olenek. It's his 11th career win with an Ezekiel choke. It's the second time he's done it from bottom in the UFC. This is an incredibly difficult submission to pull off. This is designed for like when you're in a gi and grappling so that you can use the lapel to choke out your opponent. No gis in UFC. This is unbelievable. This guy, this choke... And first of all, Junior Albini like, was more than willing, it seemed, to just accept this position on top and not feel threatened that this man is just systematically applying this choke that he is very well known for and winning with, I think, what everyone needs to be calling it now, the Olenek choke. I mean, we all got so up in arms about uh, Ovin St. Peru and why they should rename the Von Flu. Well, I'm sorry. Alexei Olenek has greatly surpassed any... Any barometer that you might weigh the Ezekiel choke pedigree on uh, to earn the name of it at this point. So Alexei Olenek pulls off uh, another win, and it's his fifth win in the UFC. The 40-year-old Alexei Olenek. And uh, 
there you go. A huge win for him in heavyweight, uh, in the heavyweight division after that loss to Curtis Blades, uh, where he was unable to continue in that fight with an injury. Cesar Fajeda and Carl Robertson were next at 185 pounds. Robertson was part of Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series. He had a 15-second victory on the season last summer and then made his UFC proper debut last November, defeating Darren Stewart. Um, had Corey Anderson in his corner. Fajeda went for the double leg, and Robertson just backed up, and he eventually got him down into side control, and Fajeda mounted him with one minute to go in the round, applies an arm triangle, and rather than tap, uh, Robertson goes out cold. So he gets the technical submission, 445 of the first round, and that concluded our prelims on uh, FXX and quite the undercard uh, to set up the pay-per-view where we got all of one decision and some pretty spectacular finishes, whether they be submissions or uh, brutal knockouts via spinning wheel kick that we also got. Uh, So you had something for everybody on this undercard. So we now transition to the pay-per-view and it kicked off with Lyoto Machida and Vitor Belfort in what Belfort has stated will be his retirement fight. Time will tell on that one, but what a what a career to look back on. Vitor Belfort, uh, one of the most interesting careers in mixed martial arts history. Uh, the date dates back in the UFC to February of 1997, three different stints in the company, uh, a former light heavyweight champion, although under the most bizarre or the most Vitor of circumstances in the way in which he won that title from Randy Couture at UFC 46 which was a, a wild card. Uh, so anyway, after all that great action on the undercard, we got this first round. You have two Southpaws that are just doing so little. There was minimal engagement, uh, limited to Machida um, attacking the body um, very infrequently. Belfort attempted to swarm him at one time during this round, but it was a extremely dull round. Uh, the body shots gave Machida the round, uh, but I was thinking, oh man, the this is going to be the inverse of that undercard on this main card. However, then we got the second round, and Lyoto is just trying to pretty much um, just distract Vitor with his lead leg, and he's shaking his right leg and trying to distract and bring attention to the lead leg, and then boom, the left leg nails Vitor, front kick to the face, and Vitor is asleep. He goes down. This was uh, very similar to Anderson Silva's stoppage of Vitor Belfort back in 2011, Uh, very similar to Lyoto's career-ending front kick to Randy Couture back at UFC 129 in Toronto. Uh, So Machida wins this at a minute of the second round, and the This was another spectacular finish, and Lyoto did not follow up with any strikes. He knew Vitor was done. He just stood there like a statue and then bowed at the fallen Vitor Belfort. And uh, John Anik interviewed both men after the fight. Belfort said that this was the end. He put his gloves down. There is probably a lot of justifiable skepticism if this is going to truly be the last fight of Vitor Belfort's career. Will he fight again? Um, He's 41. That's not crazy to imagine that this man would fight again. There will be 
probably many offers that come his way to fight elsewhere. I do feel this will be it for him in the UFC. Um, and in the chance that this is his final fight, I think you look back at a very complicated legacy that Vitor Belfort leaves behind. Um, if you are now, I have no doubt he will be in the UFC hall of fame. If you kind of have your own standards for a hall of fame, does he meet the criteria? He's one of the most interesting cases. You can argue former world champion. Should that be enough? Of course, if, if someone were to win a light heavyweight championship in any other way than Vitor Belfort did, I think it probably, it, that fact probably clinches it. But it's such a weird way in which he won that title. For me, the biggest thing is Vitor Belfort fighting at such a high level for as long as he did. Uh, this guy was not just getting by with nothing opponents uh, during any of these runs with the UFC and the plethora of promotions that this guy fought for at high levels in pride, in affliction, and then coming back to the UFC and challenging for championships as recently as 2015. Um, to me, it's one of the biggest years of his career. I feel the biggest year of his career is 2013. And of course, that's the most complicated year of his career. He beats Michael Bisping. He beats Luke Rockhold. He beats Dan Henderson. But that is, it's the TRT era. And everyone knows of how much baggage uh, Vitor brings. That was a fighter of the year performance in that year. However, it comes with a big asterisk next to it. And it's, it's, it's a difficult debate. I think that you ultimately give Vitor the Belf give Vitor Belfort the nod as a as a Hall of Fame level fighter. But I also find the discussion really interesting because he is not an easy um, yes or no candidate. There are lots of arguments, but to me, someone that has been fighting for over two decades at this level, I think that's remarkable. When you see other fighters that um, will have a fraction of that time in the sport and the level at which he competed at John Lineker and Brian Kelleher was next. This was a really, really fun fight at bantamweight. Uh, John Lineker just um, relying on his power throughout this fight. And Brian Kelleher, um, he took a lot in this particular fight in the first round. It was Lineker using leg kicks and body shots early and, dropped Kelleher briefly, and then got on top of him and clearly won the first round. In the second, we had a big striking exchange, Lineker getting the best of it, but he's using a lot of energy at this point. Uh, he went to the body. Kelleher then got back up. Uh, you could go so far as a 10-8 in the second round. You really could. Uh, third round, um, I think both men had kind of felt the effects of the prior two rounds. Uh, Kelleher shot for a takedown, um, or, sorry, Kelleher shot into a guillotine uh, by Lineker as he was going for the takedown. Uh, but then he was able to uh, alleviate some of the pressure by just going into half guard, popped his head out. Lineker uh, threw some looping right hands, and then he just went for broke here um, and just started landing big shots to the head and teeing off on Kelleher. And then it's a left hand that dropped Kelleher, ending the fight at 343 of the third round. John Lineker gets a knockout victory. Um, very important win for John Lineker. When you look at what he has done now at uh, his bantamweight campaign, um, 
You go back, lost to TJ Dillashaw back at UFC 207, and since then he he rebounded, got a decision win over Marlon Vera, and now beating Brian Kelleher. Uh, but more so, it was the performance. Uh, the, uh, John Lineker just looked superior throughout these three rounds. It was a very good performance for him. Bantamweight is a very competitive division, and John Lineker is in that mix uh, with this win. And Brian Kelleher always has entertaining fights. You can certainly say that about the New York native. Mackenzie Dern versus Amanda Bobby Cooper. This fight got so much more added attention because Mackenzie Dern not only missed weight, she missed weight by a mile, coming in at 123.4 pounds for this strawweight fight, where for the uninformed, the limit is 116 pounds, and Dern missed this by so much. Uh, Not the first time she has missed weight for a strawweight fight in her career either, uh, faced a lot of criticism, uh, the most of which came from Cooper, uh, who agreed to take this fight, and Dern had to forfeit 30% of her purse, which I don't know if she has escalators in her contract, but for her debut against Ashley Yoder, she was paid 25 and 25 So we're looking at a minimum 7500 bucks that she gave up uh, on top of the fact that she disqualifies herself from any performance of the night bonus uh, if she were to to win. Now, one of the stranger theories came from Dominic Cruz, who was stating that maybe this was strategic by Mackenzie Dern to miss weight and it would help her by not having that big cut and then going ahead with that. I, I am a big fan of Dominic Cruz, but I think that's crazy. I just think it's just the most far-fetched idea that a fighter who's not making crazy money, as much as we kind of have this uh, this bell curve of, of salaries that 25 and 25 sounds great, it's, it's really not a crazy amount considering this is someone fighting on the thir- third from the top on pay-per-view. So we're going to give up $7,500 to come in at a ridiculous weight so that we can win a straw, what was a contracted fight at straw weight, of which the win is not going to catapult me at all at straw weight. It's so ridiculous. We're going to give up uh, 30% of our pay on top of the fact that we disqualify ourselves from any bonus, which if you were to look at this card before any of the fights took place and you were to guess Wow, who could who could get that performance bonus for the best submission of the night? Mackenzie Dern would probably be one of the candidates that you would isolate as being likely to be eligible for that bonus before this card. So that's giving up a whole lot of money for, to me, um, an advantage, certainly, to go in as a bigger fighter. But to me, that is just way too crazy a conspiracy theory. So anyway, the fight begins, and... Mackenzie Dern got a lot of criticism for her stand-up in the Ashley Yoder fight. And she is hardly an accomplished striker, and she has a long way to go uh, to becoming one. But here does clearly have an ability to demonstrate that power that she possesses. And part of which is that she is a lot bigger than most of these strawweights and probably shouldn't be fighting at strawweight. Uh, she landed with a right hand early and then she dropped Cooper and immediately went to mount. And her instinctual transitions were um, 
really strong here. I mean, she got the mount and then boom, got the airtight rear naked choke and Cooper tapped out at 227 of the first. I don't know what this does for Mackenzie Dern because this cannot be weighted as uh, any significant win that propels her in the strawweight division. And in a weird way, I think that's a good thing because uh, much like bantamweight, it's not like strawweight has a deep level of contenders either that are next in line for Rose Namajunas. So Mackenzie Dern winning in this fashion, had she made weight, would probably put her into a higher level than she is ready for at this stage of her career. This was only her seventh pro fight. She's unbeaten, but she is worlds apart from being ready for a Rose Nama Yunus or anyone in that top three or four of this division. So I think actually missing weight, um, I, I think that you that this is a developing fighter in the UFC's strawweight division, which does not have a whole lot of patience for uh, developing because they need to put together big fights in this division. So I think that this was uh, a necessary performance for Mackenzie Dern after missing weight to such a degree. Um, I always feel bad for fighters like Amanda Cooper, who you really do not have a choice of whether or not to take this fight, because if you don't, then you're not being paid. And it's, and it's all the work you've done is, is negated. Uh, and, you're kind of forced into taking a fight with someone who didn't miss by a pound or two, missed by more than seven. And that's ridiculous. Like this woman was closer to the next weight class than she was yours. Um, so it was unfortunate for Amanda Cooper. She does get 30% of that pay, uh, but it was an unfortunate situation. But ultimately, the fight still went through. And maybe you can argue that when there's such a discrepancy like that, uh, the commission should be stepping in and saying, this is ridiculous. This is not happening. And in a perfect world, Amanda Cooper gets her money because she did nothing wrong. She made weight. And I, I would be happy if, if she got her show and her win bonus. I think that that is a fair assessment for someone that made weight and should not have to fight someone a weight class above her uh, because they decided not to. Because next time, maybe Amanda Cooper comes in and says, hey, why should I make this weight? And then maybe we're getting into Dominic Cruz's theory. Kelvin Gastelum and Ronaldo Jacare Souza was our middleweight bout. Very interesting fight. First round was all Jacare. He was able to take down Gastelum, which was the key, uh, after sweeping him. And then with, uh, mounted him. Uh, Gaston recovered half guard, but then Jacare back to mount, landing elbows, going for an arm bar, hammer fists to create distance. Uh, all Sosa in the first round. I only went 10-9. I didn't think it was enough for 10-8. Uh, second round, though, Gaston came out, and he wanted to strike. And Jacare got cut under the left eye, and this was Gaston's round uh, because he was able to strike with him. Jacare did not take him down, and... Uh, Gastelum, his highlight, uh, was dropping Jacare, swarmed him with strikes, uh, but then Jacare recovered, got back to his feet. Uh, so Jacare, the first round, it seemed, expended a lot of energy. And in the second, uh, this was all Gastelum's round. So it set up an interesting third round. Um, Jacare was exhausted in this third round. And I think that played a significant part in people's assessment of this round. Uh, Jacare was still able to land a head kick. He dove for a single leg, and crowd exploded when he got it. Um, 
Both takedowns he got in this third round. Gastelum immediately got up. It was a razor-close round. It was um, anyone upset with the decision is insane because this one was so close. It was a clear Jacques Ray first round, clear second round for Gastelum, and the third was a coin toss. I scored it for Jacques Ray. I had no problem uh, seeing Kelvin Gastelum get the split decision. Uh, two judges scored it for Gastelum, 29-28. One scored it for Jacques Ray. Um, I think that... Jacare's um his exhaustion probably um steered some people that shouldn't it, it like that is not something that you can deduct points for or conversely award points to Gastelum over um but nonetheless it was a super close third round so I had no problem with where this went watching this though it's clear that Jacare is not the Jacare of a couple years ago where I thought this guy was the best middleweight in the world even after that Yoel Romero loss that was um a contentious one with the fence grab um there was that period that Jacare was the uncrowned middleweight champion to me of this UFC 185 pound division I think that day has passed um Jacare is older he's now 38 years old and he did not have the conditioning to go three rounds here with Kelvin Gastelum. At least not, um, at least not at the level he did previous. Uh, for a three round fight like this, um, Jacques Ray of two years ago, I, I think handedly uh, go, gets past Kelvin Gastelum. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, Gastelum now sets himself up for probably the winner of Robert Whitaker and Yoel Romero. That's where he's at now. Now. Chris Weidman, I'm sure, would not be uh, too pleased with that. But Chris Weidman is is dealing with a – he's recovering from a injury to his hand um, that he recently had surgery on. So he's kind of out of the mix for the time being and probably will be back uh, into the fall. Um, Chris Weidman, of course, holding a victory over Kelvin Gastelum. Uh, he will – probably be in a, in a spot for something significant when he comes back. Uh, but in the meantime – Kelvin Gastelum timing maybe on his side here. So, uh, and then we had the main event where Amanda Nunez retained her championship, and it's going to be a, a big question mark of where of where she goes next, and and who kind of distances themselves from the pact and is able to come forward for that next title fight. So that was the UFC 224 card. It was a really good show, very very good show. A lot of entertaining finishes, um, some very competitive fights, and um, yeah, not not too much negative you can uh, espouse from this particular show uh, in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, as of this recording, uh, I don't believe they have yet to release the bonuses, so we don't have those. I uh, did want to quickly go over the results from the Bellator card, which I did not, uh, I have not watched as of yet, but main card results, we had uh, Adam Piccolotti submitting Carrington Banks with a rear naked choke at 441 of the third round. Czech Congo knocked out Javi Ayala at 229 of the first round. This is uh, the world standing still. Czech Congo finishing a fight. The last time this man finished someone was LeVar Johnson in September of 2014. He had been riding a cool five consecutive decision victories prior to this knockout of Javi Ayala. So good for Czech Congo, the man that was left out of the heavyweight Grand Prix. And here he is stopping Javi Ayala. Aaron Pico 
looked great again. Um, I, I saw the, the ending sequence of this where it was a body shot that rocked Lee Morrison to the point that he did a backward somersault from taking this. And Pico stopped him at a minute 10 of the first round. And in a weird way, maybe the best thing for Aaron Pico was losing that first fight back in June of last year. And he has since returned and look at the performances he has put on since then. I mean, uh, Justin Lin, Shane Crutchin, like these are the level of opponents he should be fighting. And it was a, it was a bit of a step up here taking on Lee Morrison, who isn't the most well-known guy, but he's been around a long time. He's got a pretty, you know, lengthy resume, uh, to his name. John Fitch defeated Paul Daly by unanimous decision scores of 30-27 and then two 30-26 scores. Uh, this just sounded like a dreadful fight to the point that Paul Daly was on bottom being controlled and started booing his own fight and just talking smack, I guess, with John Fitch. Uh, this was Daly's uh, kind of swan song. Um, we'll see if he continues with Bellator or not. He certainly seemed to sound like he has... Uh, no desire to continue with this company. Uh, and then the main event, Ryan Bader and Mohamed Kingmo Lawal only lasted 15 seconds with Ryan Bader knocking out Lawal to advance. And he will now fight Matt Mitrione in the second round of the heavyweight Grand Prix opposite the Chael Sonnen, Theodore Emelianenko semifinal. So that was the Bellator show. Sounded like it had uh, quite some interesting finishes much like the ufc card uh save for the john fitch paul daly fight that i think most could have assumed that was how that fight would likely play out all right let's go on over now to the uh the thread that i posted this is up at forum.postwrestling.com and i kind of just opened this up this week because not doing a regular mma show uh, at least yet uh I wanted to just open this up to questions that people had, uh, so not necessarily specific just to this card. Okay, we go to the first one here, which is from The Cobra, and he writes, uh, My UFC viewing completely nosedived with the Reebok deal, as I'm all about the individual, in this case the fighter. In your view, wasn't there a compromise in which Reebok could handle the clothing, which is still majorly boring, but still allow the fighters to obtain sponsors on their own. I always enjoyed the sponsor banner that each fighter brought out, and it seems to be both of these things could have been done to the benefit of everyone. Uh, Well, thank you for that question. I don't think this Reebok deal has been any kind of positive for anybody. I don't think Reebok's happy. I I know the fighters are not happy. And I don't think the UFC has... um, greatly benefited from having an exclusive apparel company other than a monetary exchange in which it was at first when this deal was announced that they weren't making anything off this. It was all going back to the fighters who were all taking, uh, not to a person, but I think the large percentage were all taking pay cuts and of course had no say in any of this. Um, you know, and one of the arguments at the time was, well, you don't want these fighters looking like NASCAR drivers where they're just covered in logos. It looks cleaner. That argument is fine, but you have got to then also acknowledge that it certainly hasn't stopped the UFC from making their canvas look like a NASCAR driver. And they certainly have no problem uh, just surrounding that canvas with whatever logos will pay for that real estate. Um, and having our, whatever it is, 
grudge stuff uh, that we had on as the main sponsor on this particular broadcast. So it seems like we have, listen, the UFC are the ones that put on the show. But to me, the sponsors, eliminating them was just one reason that it was of many that really upset fighters. That is such an easy one to just allow fighters to be able to go out and make some ancillary revenue in this ultra-difficult lifestyle. God forbid they are able to make a few thousand dollars extra uh, to wear some logos. So I don't think it's been a positive. In fact, I think it's been a great positive to Bellator that they are able to be the alternative that allows fighters to bring in their sponsors. Uh, next up here, what are your thoughts on the Yair Rodriguez situation? In terms of suggestions, uh, oh, this is for our content here on the site. Uh, I'm always hoping for more MMA-related content. I felt as though the MMA report was really hitting a groove during its final few weeks. I understand that you're short on time, uh, but your MMA coverage has always been insightful. All right, well, thank you very much. Uh, the Yair Rodriguez situation, just to bring everyone up to speed, uh, he was allegedly offered fights with... Uh, Zabid Magomed Sharapov and Ricardo Lamas for the August 4th card in LA. And apparently uh, this was according to the LA Times, uh, Lance Pugmire reporting that he had turned down both fights and Dana White was going to issue him a release saying, cool, we're done. We're not going to continue uh, with this relationship. Now, Yair Rodriguez, winner of the first season of Tough Latin America, of course, had some very big wins, including one over BJ Penn up until his last fight, which was a year ago this weekend against Frankie Edgar. Um, you know, um, a rising star who just ran into a generational grinding star in Frankie Edgar that I don't think there's any shame in losing to, but he was also dominated by Frankie Edgar. Um, so I wasn't obviously a fan of, you know, a guy turns down a fight and he's he's fired over it. I think it just got very personal between Dana White and Yair Rodriguez. And I think he will be a great gain for any other promotion. Um, but I think it's just it's just the latest example of fighters having no say, having no protection. And whether you're Leslie Smith or Yair Rodriguez, the message is you are expendable and we can get rid of you. On a moment's notice, if you are not going to fall in line and, and do what is expected of you. And fighters have every right to turn down fights. Nate Diaz is not going to be fired, even though he has not accepted a fight since August of 2016. And yes, I understand Nate Diaz and Yair Rodriguez are in different, uh, different positions in the UFC. But the principle is, if that's your justification for... Releasing Yair Rodriguez, it just uh, it just pronounces what a bullshit reason it truly is. Next up, how successful do you feel the heavyweight Grand Prix tournament in Bellator has been? How do you think an average Bellator stacks up to UFC in business, production, and fight quality? I think that the heavyweight Grand Prix has added some some buzz to Bellator cards that would not have much without it. Like take tonight's card in San Jose. I think that there was. You know, there's some interesting elements to tonight's show. There was, you know, Paul Daly um, fighting is going to have some some interest. Aaron Pico fighting, I think, generally gathers some interest as well. Um, but it was really King Mo and Ryan Bader. I mean, they were the main event, and they were 
this Grand Prix at least gives you kind of that focused direction on where things are going. Uh, the the television numbers uh, this year have been not great for Bellator, putting it lightly. Uh, the transition to the Paramount Network has not resulted in newer people finding this this station, or and in fact leaving this station since the spike to Paramount transition. So, um, you know, numbers were were better for the Fedor. Frank Mir fight recently. I, I don't think this one's going to be at that level that Frank Mir and Fedor were able to achieve, which was, you know, roughly the show did around 838,000 off the top of my head and about a million five peak for the, the main event. I, I can't see Mo and Bader. First of all, I mean, a 15 second fight, there's no time for any kind of growth for your main event. So I don't expect any kind of significant number for this one. Um, the next round, Bader Mitrione, I, I like the fight. I, I like that fight a lot. Um, but Sonnen and Fedor, that's the one that I think they're going to certainly um, build everything around and hopefully get a really solid number for that one and, and really promote that one heavily, more so than any of the fights we've seen so far in the Grand Prix. Uh, in terms of comparing it to the UFC, obviously in business, um, they don't hold a candle to the UFC's business. Um, Production-wise, um, Bellator's big shows, they always look good. Very professional. They look different than UFC. They really go out of their way to present a show rather than the UFC production of everything is just so cookie cutter from show to show. It's, you know, you just plop the fighters into different cities and it's the same, you know, video package, commercial break, tale of the tape. It's just, you can watch a very patterned presentation from the UFC, which is, it's fine. Um, but I prefer, you know, Bellator. They really make this, like, they do not consider in-between fights as dead time. Whereas UFC, that's what it feels like. Um, save for if they have, like, a, a special announcement. Like, tonight they had uh, the announcement for Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series. And they went over, you know, the major fights. Uh, Greg Hardy is going to be fighting on the debut show on June 12th. Uh, Valentina Shevchenko's sister, Antonina, she's going to be fighting, I believe, the third week. And then the big one is July 24th. Nick Newell will be fighting uh, against an opponent to be announced. Uh, so that was announced as well. Uh, but Bellator, they used their big shows for big video packages, big entrances. It's, um, I think the production typically is, is very good from Bellator. And fight quality, that's always going to differ from show to show. It's very um, hard to just paintbrush either promotion as, you know, what the level of quality is. There's, there's great fights in Bellator. There's awful fights in Bellator. And the same goes for the UFC. But generally, um, you have a lot of talented guys in Bellator. I mean, if you're not following the, you know, Fun fighters like Adam Piccolotti and just, you know, th there's uh, too many just to, to list off. There's a lot of talented fighters in Bellator. The biggest difference is they don't have the depth that the UFC weight classes do. Um, they're pure volume. There's so much more to work with as a UFC matchmaker than in Bellator, where you have to be a little more creative at times. And hence a Grand Prix and, uh, you know, guys that... Weight classes, they can fluctuate a bit more, and you can you can have more uh, interesting matchmaking developments. MJ, 
I'm curious what you've heard or believed to be the feeling by WME on their purchase of UFC so far. Has it been considered a good return on investment, or is it a case where they are now stuck between cutting costs at the risk of hurting the upside of the company? I don't see anything new or creative happening, but perhaps these new TV deals will change that. $4 billion is a lot to spend for a company that can't even get its biggest draws in the ring. Connor and John Jones being two that at the time of the deal, I imagine, were thought to be instant big draws with a bunch of fights left. As for MMA coverage, I found myself more into the UFC when you were doing the card rundowns and I got to hear a fighter talk for a few minutes with you. I pretty much all but stopped following outside of the biggest news stories. I would not expect to get the interview type shows like that in the past, but a quick rundown of cards would be cool and it could be quick 20 minute shows. Okay, first of all, uh, the WME IMG purchase, now WME IMG, strictly known as Endeavor. Um, so they purchased the company for right around the neighborhood of $4 billion in July 2016. When they bought that, the big, there were several reasons for it, but one of the big cards they knew that they had to play was this year's television negotiations and the belief that they could get a big jump in their domestic rights package that is currently uh, with Fox and expires at the end of this year. So when they announced on Monday the ESPN Plus deal, that was such a big home run for the UFC. I don't think that can be understated. They are getting $150 million per year with this ESPN Plus deal, and that calls for 15 events, 15 fight night shows on ESPN Plus. It will also include Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series, um, an original series that's being developed by... IMG, and shoulder programming. They're going to have pre and post shows for all these fight nights. They're going to be putting the archive of UFC events onto ESPN+. Plus. Um, it's pretty much like the cost is Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series and five, uh, 15 cards. And they're taking in 150 a year for five years. That's an incredible deal. That is, that is close to what they are making on this final year, their biggest year of the Fox deal, a seven-year deal that had escalators built into it. I mean, it's um, it cushions them significantly that you know you've got a certain offer on the table for your domestic rights package still to come. This had nothing to do with the Fox deal. This was just streaming rights, a streaming deal for $150 million. Now, there have been other reports from uh, people such as John Orant at Sports Business Journal, that there's a $200 million offer that's already been made by Fox. So you're looking at at least $350 million a year in your U.S. television rights package uh, with combined streaming rights as well. That's incredible. So we're looking at $350 million, which is a jump from what they're making now, which is $160 million from Fox, which they do not have a streaming deal until this ESPN Plus deal comes about. So today, I think Endeavor is very happy with this purchase. Um, And who knows how the domestic rights package is going to be divided up. Maybe Fox is willing to pay 200. And maybe there's another outlet out there that they'll come in on the action too. And they might go above 200 million. It's not crazy to think that the UFC could be sitting on $400 million a year out of their U.S. television and streaming rights uh, package. So I think Endeavor is probably pretty happy with the way things are 
on top of the fact that they still have pay-per-view, which if you are able to get a George St. Pierre fight in, say you get one a year, one Connor fight a year, one John Jones fight a year, which that one's up in the air. If you get a Brock Lesnar fight, that alone, that's, that's just more money on top of all of this. If you can do several of those pay-per-views, you don't need a hundred stars, but if you can get three a year to do major pay-per-view shows, that's, that's a significant revenue generator for this company on top of the fact that the next time you have a Brock Lesnar fight or a George St. Pierre fight, you're going to be getting prime ESPN coverage. ESPN, when they are in business with a sport, they are going to put a spotlight on that sport. And they are now in the UFC business. And that's huge. That's the biggest uh, kind of unspoken element of this whole deal is that, yes, the UFC is getting $150 million a year, but you are also getting untold focus on your cards from ESPN. I think you're going to see ESPN all over that network um, throughout the life of this deal. And that can't even be quantified. So I'd say... Uh, if you're if you're a part of the UFC ownership, it, it, life doesn't suck right now. Next one up here. What are your thoughts on the rumored GSP Nate Diaz fight and the UFC ESPN Plus deal? For show suggestions, I think a monthly MMA show with guests from the MMA media uh, where you go over news, recent upcoming fights, and a retro fight of the month watch along. Um, all right. Well, thank you for that suggestion. I kind of went over those are my thoughts uh, just off the top of my head on the UFC ESPN Plus deal. Um, in a nutshell, I think it's a tremendous, tremendous home run for the UFC. And in terms of level of cards you can expect on ESPN Plus, um, that was something I wanted to talk about. The UFC is going to want to present a quality product here, knowing the money they are being paid. Um, by ESPN, and I think ESPN will will have that expectation of we're we're spending 150 million dollars a year. Uh, we want we want big cards on this ESPN Plus platform, which all of their focus is is a part of. So, um, yeah, those are my thoughts. Huge win for the UFC this deal. GSP and Nate Diaz. Um, I'll be honest, I'm I'm not that crazy about this fight at all. Um, I I don't find it all that interesting. Uh, George St Pierre fighting at lightweight. I I, th- I think it's too late in his career to be doing something so radically different. Um, it just seeing all the health problems he had fighting at middleweight, and your answer is to cut down two weight classes for your next bout, that just seems like a poor, thought-out decision. Um, when I-, I feel that George can kind of call his own shots at this point. I mean, if this guy wanted to fight at... 160, 165. I think he could do that. I don't think he has to go all the way down to 155 to fight Nate. And I don't even think Nate is... Listen, that fight will do well. But I don't have um, a giant interest in it. Um, That said, I know that come the day of the fight, that will be an enormous fight to people. Um, But it doesn't have a whole lot of my interest at this point. I I think that if George St. Pierre truly has two fights left, let's say three fights left... Nate Diaz isn't one of those three opponents I want to see George St. Pierre fight before he calls it a career. Next up, um, since the UFC has never punished Conor McGregor for either of the incidents at Bellator 187 or before UFC 223, do you think he'll get away with any sort of punishment from UFC? Um, The punishment um, in New York 
it's going to come down from the legal side of things. I mean, the UFC can't, um, they can not book them. They're well within their rights to do that, but they have not exercised any of that kind of hesitation. We had 24 hours where I thought Dana White was, I thought handled the situation about as well as a company president could uh, with his disgust over it. And, um, really kind of putting down his, finally putting his foot down with Connor. And by the weekend, he had done a total 180 on it and just kind of shrugged his shoulders. And that kind of told me everything I needed to see about this story, that Connor McGregor is not going to face any sanctions from the UFC. And I, I think it was awful. I think that, that when you watch that, that video um, and you watch the, the video in particular from inside the bus – the concern those fighters must have had and the brief period where you don't know what's going on. All you know is that this bus is being attacked by people. There's a dolly being thrown at this bus. There's glass that is shattering in Michael Chiesa uh, and Ray Borg's face. Um, it's, I, I thought it was such a low point for this sport as a whole, that incident. I just... Uh, but at the same time, I, I don't think he's going to face any any repercussions from the UFC side of things. And we will see if the the legal side in New York feels any differently towards Conor McGregor. But um, I, I thought it was horrible. I think the UFC really could have made a statement at that time by stating we are we are not going to jump into bed with this guy when we don't need to. And the funny thing is, as much as he is an, an enormous revenue generator. What has been discovered this week with this ESPN Plus deal, and once they land their domestic rights partner for the foreseeable future, this is a company that is going to be making so much money every year without, with just presenting content. They, are, they have never been less reliant on stars than they will be in 2019 when they have all this money coming in. Where, you know what? A Conor McGregor decides not to fight in 2019? Cool. We have minimum $350 million coming into us from one territory of the world. That is not taking into account any of their other worldwide deals. So they, the days of fixating on... on matchmaking and fights to make as the life and death of this company are slowly disappearing. That is going to be a thing of the past where one star is going to determine the health of this company. They are going to have so much fixed revenue coming in that bad years are going to be relative in the grand scheme of things. When you have that amount coming in that you're going to have either very good years or exceptionally great years. That's kind of the range the UFC is going to be in with these these new deals in place. All right. Um, let's continue on here. Hi, John. Always love hearing that there's some MMA coverage when it does come along. Would love to hear even just a monthly roundup of MMA news and questions if you're able to fit it into your busy schedule. I was wondering with the ESPN Plus deal and what seems to be a likely increase in their rights fees, do you see any of this money trickling down to the lower end fighters? Or are we about to enter a place in UFC especially where there will be the haves, those with brand names like Diaz, McGregor, GSP, Lesnar, etc., and those who don't have 
who don't receive regardless of what they achieve. Also, how many shows do you believe UFC will be doing next year with the 15 from ESPN Plus and surely a few on Fight Pass and pay-per-views before even getting to how many there will be within the new TV deal? Will UFC start putting on shows weekly or will they get such an increase in TV rights that they may cut down the number of pay-per-views and load up the TV to build to massive, roughly six to eight massive pay-per-views a year? That's David from Potterton. All right. Uh, lots to cover in there. So do I see any of this new revenue trickling down to the lower-end fighters? Sadly, I do not. Um, I do not. I, I don't see any of the fighters sharing in any of this when they're not doing enough on their own to to draw up a seat at the table. I mean, that's that's the unfortunate part. As we talk about this $350 million minimum, that the UFC will be taking in, the fighters will see zero of that. They are entitled to zero of that presently. And that is one that you can certainly look at the UFC and disagree with that, but you can't blame them. I think that you have to look at the fighters. Where have you been for the last seven years? Where have you been for the last two when the UFC sold this thing for billions of dollars? You knew this TV deal was on the horizon and nothing. So that's on the fighters, and it's an individual sport to a degree, but then at the same time, you have a company, which, again, that was a real attractive thing. Endeavor's buying a, a promotion in the UFC that has no union. Their fighters are not... We have a massive TV rights negotiation coming up, and we don't have to share any of that with the, with the performers? What a great deal. And listen, the fighters have been unable to organize, and... That's just the reality of the situation. So, no, I don't see that changing. I don't even know if that's ever going to change. And I think a lot of these fighters will look back on these enormous rights deals and thinking what could have been if we had been able to negotiate 1% of that television deal. That's a big difference for a lot of these these fighters. Um, so when we uh, continue here, a number of shows... I think that by the end of everything, it will probably be a net positive when you look at, like, you're adding these 15 ESPN Plus cards. I could see less Fight Pass cards exclusive. There still will be some. And then it's ultimately going to be a guessing game of what your domestic rights deal is going to call for. Are we going to see, let's let's say that there's a mixture of networks and they're all going to want uh, pieces of this product. Uh, and there's also the argument that, you know, if, if a Fox wants to go in on this, maybe they want less than what's out there uh, with all the fight night events and all the Fox cards. Um, so I feel by the end of this, I think it's either going to be equal to, if not more than what you're already seeing, which is going to come close to a, a fight a weekend. That's probably what it's going to average out to when you include certain weekends where you're getting multiple events a weekend. I don't think we're going to get those crazy doubleheader shows that we did experience a couple of years back, a few times when you'd have two shows in one day. I think those are done. I don't th see them going back to that. That's that's hell on that staff to try and pull off two shows in different parts of the world in one day. And it was just unbelievably incredible to try and watch that in, in one day, which again, that's 
that's being moved away from where the expectation level is not that we are going to be catering to fans that are going to keep up with this product with every show. It's going to be picking and choosing and watching the fighters and the fights that you have an interest in and skipping the rest. All right. Uh, We have two more here. What do you think is the future of women's MMA? 145 is a one-woman division. 135 has been cleaned out. And somehow Holly Holm is ranked number one and has basically just become a feeder for Cyborg. 125 has been completely dormant since they did tough last year. Can the UFC sustain these three women's divisions like this? And he asks a bonus question, your favorite and least favorite UFCs ever. Okay, well, that's uh, that's an involved question uh, going through history. Um I think you're always going to see divisions fluctuate and and go through kind of feast or famine. And I think uh, with 135, there's an issue with contenders at the top end, but not in terms of an actual division. Like there are people in that division. Um, It's full of fighters. It's just no one standing out right now as a prime candidate to fight Amanda Nunez after tonight. But typically... Divisions figure themselves out, and it does have depth to it. 145, you're right. Like, there's there's nothing to that division beyond Cyborg. And, I mean, we're, we're going to see Holly Holm fight Megan Anderson next month in Chicago, uh, which they announced that's going to be on the prelims, amazingly. You're going to have Holly Holm on the prelims, Rashad Evans on the prelims, Joseph Benavidez on the prelims, and then the main card uh, is going to feature, you've got Whitaker Romero, you've got... Uh, You've got Colby Covington and Rafael Dos Anjos uh, fighting for the very bizarre interim welterweight title that no one understands why it is being created, but it is. Uh, and then the rest of the main card rounds out with Alistair Overeem, Curtis Blades, Andre Orlovsky, Tai Tuivasa, and CM Punk versus Mike Jackson. And I know that's going to anger many people that CM Punk is on the pay-per-view when Holly Holm and... Clay Guida and Rashad Evans and Joseph Benavidez are not. That said, the only reason CM Punk is still fighting is because of the belief that there is an audience that will pay to see this guy. So he, if he's not on pay-per-view, he might as well not even be on this roster. And some would argue he shouldn't be on this roster. Uh, this is going to be uh, the the least exp- exp- like the least experience in terms of mixed martial arts competition uh, on a UFC pay-per-view. Maybe you have to go back to UFC 1 or 2. Um, that's kind of what we're talking about here. But like, no one, no one is hiding the fact of why CM Punk is here. It is here because the belief that he's going to generate attention. Will he generate the same level of attention he did for the Mickey Gall fight? Probably not at that level. But if it's comparable or it's even half then they're putting him on pay-per-view for that reason. That hopefully people that have no interest in any other fights on this card are going to pay money to watch this guy fight a second time. Uh, so that that's that. All right, uh, back to the question uh, at hand. So, yeah, that's the women's divisions. I, I feel that 125 and 135 I have less concern about. 145, it very much is contingent on Cyborg at the moment. Um I think over time, women will move to that division, um, but it's it's hardly been a giant success thus far. Um, but I, I don't see the UFC giving up on any of these divisions yet. If Cyborg were to leave, 
maybe. But I feel by the time that happens, that if Cyborg were to leave, that other women would assume that, that division. And look, we just are going over how many cards there's going to be. They want as many divisions as possible so that they can have as many titles as possible to headline all of these cards. So the idea of contraction, of shows, of titles, of divisions is not in their business plan. So I don't see any of these divisions disappearing. They will find bodies to fill these divisions when they are absolutely in need of it. And, oh, favorite and least favorite UFCs. You know what? I'll keep this one quick because this one could go on forever. I'll keep it to ones I've covered, okay? My favorite event to cover, I really uh, – let's, let's see here. One of my favorite fight weeks to cover was George St. Pierre and Nick Diaz in Montreal – that week, every single day, there was something insane involving Nick Diaz, where he no-showed the open workouts, and just everything was nuts about the build-up to that fight. And every day brought something new. Uh, so that was that was a real fun one. Um, being there for UFC 205 at Madison Square Garden, that was such a great show. Uh, getting to cover that one was a lot of fun as well. Um, you know, UFC 200 was, to me, a major letdown of a card. Um, but that was probably the most stressful one. It was three cards in a row on consecutive nights. You had the John Jones failure that week. So he was pulled out and then Anderson Silva's in to fight Daniel Cormier. Uh, that was insanity. Like there was so much craziness attached to that card. Um, that 200, the actual card was nothing important. Well, it was important, but it was, it was built up to be something that ultimately it didn't deliver upon. Um, what would be the worst one to cover? Um, you know, UFC uh, 186 in Montreal. It was Demetrius Johnson and Kyoji Horiguchi. Being there that night for that card, it was just a very depressing night in Montreal where, man, there's been so many great UFC cards at the Bell Center, and that was not one of them. Even though you got that spectacular finish with Demetrius Johnson with a second to go, um, but it was just not a very lively show. So that was kind of one of the the weaker ones to cover um, off the top of my head. One of my favorite fights of all time is still uh, Tim Sylvia, Randy Couture uh, from March 2007. That's one fight that, I mean, if you just watch it, the fight is really nothing special. It's all about the context and the timing and Randy Couture coming out of retirement and he beats the heavyweight champion and just remembering uh, the end of that fight when, well, there's two memorable parts of that fight. The first is Randy dropping him at the beginning of the fight and then it goes the distance and the entire place is counting down like it's New Year's Eve as the clock is ticking and Randy Couture wins the heavyweight title. It was just something magical. Um, so that that's always a fight um, that comes to mind for me. Um, going back to before I was even working in any kind of capacity in MMA coverage, um, Jens Pulver, BJ Penn, that was um, the, their first fight from January 2002, uh, UFC 35. Uh, that was a fight that when it was announced, like everyone counted out Jens Pulver in this fight. And I just remember counting down the days until that fight. And when Pulver pulled off the upset in that fight. Oh, I was just, uh, I just thought it was the greatest thing watching this incredible story. And at a time when, man, it's like no one, 
It's like no one is paying attention to this incredible sports story of Jens Pulver pulling off this upset, defeating BJ Penn. So there you go. Those are a few uh, that come to mind. Let's do one more. Then we're going to wrap this up. This has been too long. I'm looking at the time now. Last one here. Uh, John, I've fallen off in the Reebok USADA era. I just hate what the sport has become. The UFC has made it clear that money is the only thing that matters, especially if it means not giving it to the fighters. Can you talk about where you see the UFC and MMA in general going in the next few years? Do you think the fighters will unionize before the TV deal is finalized? And if not, what does that say about the athletes? They will not unionize before this TV deal is finalized because it will be finalized before the end of this year. And I don't foresee a union um, coming together in that short amount of time. I think that when it comes to unions and associations, there's been so many missteps. I think fighters are naturally paranoid um, about attaching their names to anything. And to be honest, they're going to be spooked by things like what happened to Leslie Smith and what's happening to Yair Rodriguez and not wanting to get into the crosshairs of a company that is making so much money now. They are more powerful than ever when it comes to revenue and being less reliant than ever on any fighters. I mean, they are in a position where, yes, they will go out of their way to uh, work and acquiesce to a Conor McGregor, to a nah, to a lesser extent, a Nate Diaz. Um, but look, look at the look at the tactics that Dana White has used with so many of his champions, with George St. Pierre, like giant giant stars that he has picked fights with. Um, so that's that's nothing new, Dana White openly fighting with his top fighters, with his, you know, roster. There's very few that Dana White has not had those those public outbursts with. Um, but now they're in a situation where they are less reliant than ever on, on certain fighters. Like, if Conor McGregor does not want to come back, it's, it's not going to kill them in 2019. It's nice to have him added get one or two fights in that's a big difference on your year but now you're pulling in so much more television money and streaming money that it offsets quite a lot and i I just see the gap widening between fighters and the ufc company that it's just there are two different spectrums at the at this point and Listen, I, I hope one day that there's a union. I hope one day these fighters can share in all of this enormous revenue, but I'm not holding my breath for it. I don't think anyone should be. They have not been able to show any kind of – they've not been able to demonstrate any any steps to join together and, and work together. And you have isolated uh, figures like Cajun Johnson and Leslie Smith that are sticking their neck out and getting so little support. Uh, for what they're trying to do. And in Leslie Smith's case, losing out on a UFC career as a result of it. Um, so that's that's where things stand. It's not a really bright picture if you're hoping to see proper representation uh, amongst fighters and having a seat at the table. All right. That's going to wrap up the show. Thank you to everybody uh, that downloaded this show, that listened. Um, I'm going to be doing these after each uh, pay-per-view. So that's the current plan. And in terms of expanded coverage with MMA, always going to be doing news in my updates and having the news up on the site. Uh, When it comes to shows, I'm definitely uh, batting around some ideas and and different ideas um, to do 
knowing my, my schedule and just uh, what I can do. But we're going to definitely do these after uh, all the pay-per-views. So for sure, we'll be back right after uh, UFC 225 next month in Chicago, which is going to be a very busy day because the New Japan Dominion card is on that morning. And then we've got 225 that night. So that will be a no-sleep day. Uh, so thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, once again, postwrestling.com is where you can go. Sunday, we've got our roundtable show out with myself and Way, joined by Arta Ocal. And then Monday night, we'll be back with Rewind a Raw. So that is it for me. And we'll speak with you later on this weekend.